Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. It was Saturday. The marketplace was closed. It was, after all, the Sabbath. Um, People weren't supposed to be doing business or really even out on the streets much on the Sabbath, so it was quiet. It was strangely quiet. Uh, The previous week, um, with it being Passover, Jerusalem had swelled to 10 times its normal size, all the pilgrims coming in. But it was Saturday. We don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I think that they were kind of going over the past week. On Sunday, their triumphant entry into Jerusalem, you know, people throwing palm branches in front of Jesus and they came in. On Monday, Jesus did one of those crazy things that he does from time to time. He went into the temple, he overturned all of the tables, he chased everybody out who was trying to make business happen in the temple. On Tuesday, the religious leaders came and they were trying with their words to trap Jesus. They were trying to make him look like a fool in front of the crowds or say something that the Romans could arrest him for. But they failed. They failed miserably. They were humiliated and they gave up. And so on Wednesday and Thursday, Jesus went back to the temple and he taught. But it was Saturday. And on Saturday, I think the disciples started remembering the Passover, the special meal that they had with Jesus where he did some amazing things again. He washed their feet. He told them that there's a whole new covenant, a whole new way out there, and he changed the Passover meal. And like all the other nights before, they would go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and start to pray, and that particular night, they went out. And then there was the arrest, the betrayal, Then the trials, the denial, the beating, leading Jesus away. They nailed him to a cross, and he died, and he was buried. It was Saturday. The disciples were probably behind locked doors. They were probably a little thankful it was quiet. You see, they could strain their ears, and they can hear a distant dog bark, maybe footsteps out there on the street. Are they coming for us too? Of course, the religious leaders, it's Sabbath, so they wouldn't come, but the Romans? Are they going to come and arrest us because we knew Jesus? It was Saturday. They were probably asking, what are we supposed to do? For the past three years, we have followed Jesus. We have watched him do amazing things, heal people, turn everything upside down with his teaching, show us a whole new way to live. But it wasn't supposed to end this way. 
all that Jesus did, and yet he died, and he's in a tomb. It was Saturday. And for now, I think the disciples just sat and prayed and huddled together behind locked doors. They may have started asking the question, should, should we leave tomorrow? As all the other pilgrims are starting to leave, should we just kind of hide in among them and go out? Should we put our head down and just flee? Just before this on Friday, before the Sabbath ended, and the Sabbath ended at sundown, there was a quick burial of Jesus. A couple people were able to get his body. They wrapped him in a single cloth. They put some spices on him. They put him in the tomb, and they closed it up. The ladies who had followed Jesus, they wanted to do something different. You see, just part of their culture, when somebody they cared about died, part of their grieving process was they wanted to care for their body, to clean it, to anoint it with oils and spices and to take care of it. So Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Now, of course, the Sabbath didn't end until sundown, so there wasn't time for them to go out to the tomb. It was dark. They'd have to wait for Sunday morning. But they'd want to go out really early before everybody else was up so that no one could stop them, or even worse, nobody would recognize them as following Jesus and want to arrest them. So very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went out to the tomb. They knew where to go. They knew what to expect. End of chapter 15, we read that they watched where Jesus was buried. Watched him wrapped and watched him anointed with a few spices and then the tomb closed. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Tombstones were big and heavy. They were to keep people out, animals out, and to keep the smell of decay inside. Men would use donkeys and oxen to move the stone whenever they needed to get in. And I don't think the ladies knew what they were going to do. Maybe just out of faith or just momentum, they just went ahead and went. The men and the disciples were likely too scared to go and help them. But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large. It had already been rolled aside. How could this be? Was someone messing with the tomb? Were the religious leaders desecrating Jesus even more? When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. For us, this is the familiar Easter story, isn't it? The celebration that Christ is alive and risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But there wasn't celebration yet. It was too fresh too new, too painful. On that very first Easter Sunday, 
the angel had to tell the ladies, don't be afraid. And then, after declaring the amazing miracle of Jesus' resurrection, the angel gave the ladies instructions. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. It was a reminder of what Jesus had already told them at the Last Supper. When I die and I'm risen, go ahead, go to Galilee, and I will meet you there. How did the ladies react to this news? The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And this is the end of the Gospel of Mark. This is not the celebration of Easter that we're used to hearing, is it? It's a little different. It's an end with fear and confusion. If you're following along right now, you're looking and you're seeing there's a note in most Bibles right after verse 8. It says, the most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse 16, 8. Later manuscripts add one or both of the following endings. Um, turns out that this little note has been put in Bible since the 900s when a monk named Ephraim is the first one that kind of wrote it out. Now, why would there be alternate endings added to Mark? Well, there's a couple good reasons. One, man, what a way to end this book. Incredible book of what Jesus did, and you end it with fear and confusion. We don't like those kind of endings, do we? We want something else. And so I think maybe early on people started to write a little bit more just to make it end a little happier. The other three Gospels all end with accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples, coming and teaching, showing that he really is alive, challenging them for the next steps. But Mark doesn't end that way. Some of the early fathers of Christianity, as the church was starting to grow, um, they thought that the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, was the pinnacle of the gospels. And Mark was actually like a reader's digest copy without all the details and everything. And so they kind of minimized the gospel of Mark. And if you look at it, when you open up your Bible, the order that's there, it goes Matthew, then Mark. But the reality is the gospel of Mark was written first. And Matthew actually used Mark as he wrote his gospel. So I think they thought they maybe needed to help Mark out a little bit and add a few details. There is definite evidence that verse 8 is the end. One of the things you can look at is just the vocabulary. In Greek, everything else, the rest of the verses, they use a whole bunch of Greek words that aren't found anywhere else in the book of Mark. Plus the sentence structure, the style of writing is completely different. And then sometimes there's things in those longer endings that maybe just aren't necessary. For instance, there's a reintroduction of Mary Magdalene in the long ending. But she has been mentioned three times in the last ten verses. So we don't need another introduction. Plus sometimes that longer ending, it has a few things that occurred in the book of Acts. But when John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, those events had not yet actually happened. And so I think they were part of the ending. For me, part of the reason why I firmly believe that it really ended in verse 8 is the oldest versions of the complete Gospels that we have 
are found in two manuscripts, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, both about late 200s. Neither one of them have any other endings. They end on verse 8. And by the way, it's okay in the Bible for some books to end on an unclear ending. The book of Jonah ends with this question from God, and we're kind of left to decide, did Jonah get it or not? But it raises a good question. Are the verses in Mark 16, 8 to 20 still biblical? Oh, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. They still are scripture. But they're just not how John Mark, the original author, finished it. Let me help explain this a little bit. Are you guys familiar with the statement that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man? We mention this pretty often, right? Um, God's math, somehow 200s still works out, right? Well, we call it the hyperstatic union. That's the theological term. But the Gospel of John in particular and the book of Hebrews spends tons of time walking through this. It's an important thing. You see, Jesus had to be 100% man or God so he could be part of the Trinity so that, well, he could be God's son. But at the same time, he has to be 100% man. Otherwise, his sacrifice on the cross doesn't work. A man had to die. And so that's why he's both. And likewise, the Bible is actually 100% God and 100% man as well. The Bible are not golden tablets that fell from the sky. They're not things that somebody found in a cave and translated. They're not that the clouds parted and, oh, there it was, right? They are 100% inspired by the Holy Spirit. God wanted very specific things said and told to us so that we could know who he is, how he loves us, and what we're supposed to do. 100% inspired by God. But God used men to actually put pencil to paper and to start writing it out. So it's 100% God, but men were involved. I know that may be kind of difficult to understand and it may shake some foundations for you and that's okay. But I think you're probably okay with some of the things that come from this. For instance, the book of Deuteronomy written by Moses. But Moses died before the book was done. So somebody finished it. Or Psalms and Proverbs. They were compiled hundreds of years after King David and King Solomon lived. Or the prophet Jeremiah, his book. Multiple places in that book it says these are the writings and the sayings of Jeremiah compiled by a guy named Baruch. Somebody else was involved. And so coming back to those alternate endings for Mark. There's still scripture. We're still to follow them. They are supported by other scripture. They're just not unique. And I don't think they're what John Mark originally wrote. And here's why that's important. As we look through the gospel of Mark, you will see multiple times that there are places where Jesus did miraculous things. He used the power of being the son of God in incredible ways and people reacted. For instance, Mark chapter 4. He calms the storms and the sea while they're in a boat. And the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
A little bit later, Jesus delivers a man from a legion of demons. Chapter 5, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. That's how they reacted. Or Mark chapter 6, where Jesus walks on water and meets the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. Or Peter, James, and John, they got to go up on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured, when he was changed before their eyes. And Moses and Elijah joined him for a while. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say. He was confused. And they were all terrified. So at the tomb, the women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing because they were too frightened. When confronted with a living God, confronted with a God who's using his power, it causes fear. I think that's the natural response. And so for John Mark to end here with the ladies in fear makes complete sense. But also John Mark brings up a lot of questions. As we read the gospel, and we've talked about these questions each week, there's three big questions that are in the book. Number one, who do you say I am? Jesus directly asked the disciples this. At the time, people were answering all sorts of things in the book of Mark about who Jesus was. He was a rabbi, a teacher, a good man, a prophet, a fake, demon-possessed. Maybe he was Moses or Elijah coming back or the son of David or the Messiah. John Mark wants to make sure that we know the answer to this question and he begins it in the very first verse. And again, we've talked about this the whole series. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That who is who Jesus is. Then there's the second question. And that question is, what did Jesus come to do? After chapter 8, this is the heavy part of uh, the book of Mark. He just over and over goes over what Jesus came to do. People had a lot of answers. They thought, well, maybe he came to teach or heal. Maybe he was supposed to turn over tables and expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Maybe he was going to kick out the Romans or just start a new kingdom. Jesus answers this question himself in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life for us. He came to conquer death and sin, to give us victory and freedom. He came to be a sacrifice once and for all, for all sins, including ours. He came to die. He came to be our Savior. 
But there's a third important question out of the Gospel of Mark. What are you going to do about it? This is what Mark 16.8 definitely brings out. The women were trembling, bewildered, frightened, and said nothing. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do about Jesus? What did Jesus tell us to do? Well, it's pretty clear again. Mark chapter 8, verses 34, 35. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So Jesus said, I, follow me. That's what you're supposed to do. Follow what I taught you, what I showed you, what I modeled. Tell people about me. Embrace a whole new way of being human, no longer constrained with your own selfishness and your sin, but love others, love God, make disciples, and make the good news, the gospel, that transforming power that comes with forgiveness Make it your life priority. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Is there hope in the story? Absolutely. The angel's message still stands. Christ was risen. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Did the women stay in the state of fear or confusion? Absolutely not. The original readers of, of the book of Mark would have been sitting there and reading and going, oh, I know the rest of the story. Because they knew the story of Jesus because the ladies did go and tell. And the disciples who were afraid and in locked rooms left and started telling people. So yes, we get to celebrate Easter. We get to celebrate that he is risen indeed. But... Our celebration of that is awfully shallow if it doesn't actually mean anything to us. So what about you? Read this whole Gospel of Mark. In the end, it comes down to what about you? How do you answer these three questions? Who is Jesus to you? What did he come to do? And what are you going to do about it? Now, right now, I could give pretty easily, you know, seven steps to a better spiritual life. I can give you a layout. I'm not going to do that. Because the answers that I would provide may not be the answers that you need. I think you need to answer these questions for yourself. Come up with what the real answers are and then walk with Jesus. Maybe some of your answers need to change and that's okay. So my hope is this morning, after we have finished up this, this whole series is that you start to ponder these three questions. I hope we've stirred up a little bit in you that you've got to sit back and really work through them, starting today and hopefully for weeks to come. And so this morning what I'd like to do is just kind of close this out. I'm going to do a little bit of a directed prayer again. We're going to pray through each of these three questions. And then I hope that it continues beyond just now. So the first question, who is Jesus to you? What I'd like you to do right now in prayer 
admit and confess to Jesus who he really is. Go beyond just the, well, he's my Savior and Lord, kind of the answers we're taught to say, but what does your heart actually say? Where are you at right now? And spend some time and pray about it. If, if those are true that he is your Lord and Savior, then thank him. That's awesome. And if not, ask him for the next step to show you what you're supposed to do. So right now, let's pray together. Who is Jesus to you? Go ahead and pray. And our second question, what did Jesus come to do? He came to be our Savior and to die for us, but have you accepted that truth? Have you accepted that he came to do that for you? If you have, then go ahead in prayer, just in thanksgiving again, thank him that he has that in your life, that he has shown you and you've opened up your heart, but If that's not where you're at, it's okay. Go ahead and pray right now that he will show you why he came and that you'll be open to listening to it. Let's go ahead and pray. What did he come to do for you? And our third question, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about Jesus? What response do you have to Jesus right now? And be honest, are are you a fan? Are you a critic? Are you a follower? Are you a consumer, a skeptic? Does he have no impact on you at all? Are you becoming a disciple? Maybe think through has he changed you? Has he transformed you? And if so, are you telling and showing other people that change? So right now, I just want us to pray through this question. Admit in prayer your response to him. Where are you at? And then ask the Holy Spirit to show you the next steps. We are all on a journey. And so all of us have a next step. So right now, pray, what are you going to do about Jesus? Let's pray together.
Jesus, you are amazing. You chose to leave the splendor of heaven for each one of us. As we read last week, you chose a hard path because you love each one of us. You subjected yourself to humiliation, to mockery, to extreme brutality and violence. While the Romans might have nailed your body to the cross, you put yourself on the cross for us. I'm not sure we can completely comprehend that. We're probably a little bewildered by it and don't quite understand and if we're truthful, maybe even a little afraid. Afraid to be in front of you because of your holiness. Because we're broken. We are messed up. We choose our own selfishness all too often. We want what we want and we want it now. And yet you loved us. Loved us enough to die for us. And by dying on that cross, you overcame sin and death. You had the ultimate victory then, the victory that gives us forgiveness and grace today. That when we believe in our hearts that you died for us and we accept that you are God's son, forgiveness and grace, transformation is available. Each of us are on a journey. We cannot ignore you. We have to decide one way or the other. Are we going to follow you completely or not? So Holy Spirit, I I pray that you will help each one of us. Guide us on what the next steps are. Guide us in how our hearts need to change and how we can take this incredible news of Jesus being raised from the dead and to do something with it, to help others, to throw out lifelines and life preservers to a world that is drowning in sin around us, to honor you, to put the glory on you. Jesus, thank you for loving us first. In your name, Jesus, amen.